Human Behavior Podcast with Tim Cripps. Dr. David Rudd, thank you for coming. Actually, you didn't come. We are <laughs> at your office on location yeah, at the agree. U of M, our most traveled location. Uh, we did a couple of interviews with some of your professors out here, and oh, uh, it's good. been really great good. so far. So the reason that we're here today is to talk about suicide risk prevention and treatment. Um, you're quite experienced in this field. You have a list of journal articles that's as long as your arm, sort of like the Stephen King of suicide <laughs> literature. Before we get started, I was wondering if maybe you could go through your CV really quick, like uh, starting maybe at graduate school to tell us how you wound up actually being here. Yeah, I went to, uh, so I did my undergraduate work at Princeton, and then uh, I grew up in Texas, so I came back and, and went to the University of Texas uh, for graduate school. Uh, I had paid for school with a military scholarship, and so uh, so I owed military service time, so I got what's called an educational delay to go to, to, go to graduate school. So when I got out, I, I served in the military, served for five years, served in the Gulf War, uh, was a division, was called a division psychologist, so I was the clinical service provider uh, during the war for the Second Armored Division uh, during that time. And uh, after the war um, got out, I, I stayed in, I was at Fort Hood when I got back and, and stayed in the local area and I took a position with Texas A&M College of Medicine, which was a part of the Scott and White Clinic and Hospital System, which is now Baylor Scott and White. So it's part of what's called the Clinic Club. So like Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic and they're a part of that. Yeah, they're a part of that big entity. And so I... Um, um, was the director of psychology there and, and uh, for about 10 years and did um, inpatient and outpatient care and, and full-time care. So I did 40 hours a week of clinical care and uh, really enjoyed that and then transitioned from there to Baylor uh, and directed the uh, PsyD clinical psychology program for five years and was chair of the department there. Uh, and that was primarily because my wife wanted to go back and get a doctorate. And so uh, we needed to make a move, uh, so we made a move to do that. And I'd always planned uh, in getting back in academics. I didn't anticipate it would take 15 years uh, to get back to academics, but uh, really enjoyed doing clinical practice. And when I was uh, at Baylor, I still had a clinical practice, so I did a practice in the evenings uh, and still did clinical work. And then from there, transition, when she finished, we both went to Texas Tech, and we were both professors, and I was an administrator there. But continued to practice. Uh, and then finally, I got recruited away to be a dean um, at the University of Utah and stopped practicing at that point uh, in terms of um, my own patient load, but um, I continue to do clinical trials. And so uh, I've always actually currently do clinical trials, uh, even in my current role. And then from there, came here, was a provost, and now the president uh, of the university. Right, and you said that you're doing something with Yale right now. Uh huh. With the yeah, the Institute of Living, uh, their psychiatric care facility that's attached. We're doing a clinical trial with uh, brief care for inpatients. So we just finished a trial in the military uh, with outpatients uh, a couple of years ago. We just got it published uh, last year, and then we. Uh, uh, finished a uh, emergency department uh, clinical trial doing brief intervention for suicide attempters. So do uh, as a 20-minute intervention that actually had significant impact on subsequent suicide wow. attempts. Wow, 20 minutes. 20 minutes, yeah, 20 minutes uh, with no follow-up, uh, which is fascinating. Uh, 
Um, but it speaks in the nature of the problem. Uh, and then we just actually just published a book. It just came out last month uh, on um, what originally I'd called a brief cognitive therapy because it's a time-limited cognitive therapy uh, as a part of it. And during that time, when I was actually at Scott & White, I worked with Tim Beck, Aaron Beck. He goes by Tim, but uh, the founder of cognitive therapy. I did a two-year fellowship at the Beck Institute, uh, which was actually a really interesting process. I wanted to ask you a question, which when I thought of it, seemed like a simple question, but just to provide a little context here. Recently, we've seen some famous people who have committed suicide. Um, Chris Cornell from Soundgarden, Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park, Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain. Mm -hmm. And I've looked at some of the research, too, and to me it seems like there's every indication that the rate of suicide is just going up and up and up. Mm -hmm. On a steady trend, with Americans anyway, and... I have this risk assessment here, which made me realize that uh, maybe the question I was about to ask you, um, I thought it was going to be a simple question, but maybe it's not so simple. Um, but uh, why do people commit suicide? Yeah, I think, well, I think that's a, I think that that's a, um, it, it's not a simple question. I mean, I think it's a complicated question. I mean, the vast majority of those cases, there's mental illness involved, um, uh, overwhelmingly, I, you know, people would argue uh, whether or not it's it's a hundred percent, but easily ninety, ninety-five percent. Clearly, when you do psychological autopsies, you can find that it was clearly indicated uh, mental illness. Um, uh, whether it's depression, anxiety, or another uh, diagnosis, and, and and the vast majority of those are are either untreated or undertreated, but it's a bigger problem than that. So part of what we have done in our clinical care uh, is, and and actually I'm working on a book now, and the title of the book um, is Hope as a Skill. Um, hope actually is a multifaceted skill, and I would tell you that people that die by suicide, it's not the mental illness that kills them. Um, it's the lack of capacity for hope, and I really believe that's a designated skill that involves, um, that involves uh, cognitive elements, emotional processing elements, and interpersonal elements, and they have impairment in that capacity for any number of reasons. Um, and one of the things that we've done, we do very simple interventions that help people develop a perspective of hope, even in the midst of significant illness and crisis, because the vast majority of people that are depressed, bipolar, uh, anxious, have PTSD, don't kill themselves. It's a small percentage uh, in relative terms, as tragic as that is, but ultimately they just don't have the capacity to build hope in the midst of that turmoil and crisis. And, and our evidence suggests that it works. Uh, it actually, our latest trial, the one we did the military, we reduced post-treatment suicide attempt rates by 60% relative to inpatient care. Uh, it was the largest reduction in history, uh, in clinical trial history. And so, and we had three-year follow-up. Um, so it endures. And our recent trial on emergency department intervention, uh, very small things have very significant impact. Along with the financial impact, I'd assume. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and, and a part of that speaks to the, the nature of care. So in this country, uh, access to health care is very limited uh, for high-risk people. And so... Uh, being able to get care that can be delivered, that's part of why we did a brief model, is that uh, the nature of care delivery has changed. And so when I was in graduate school, 
uh, in training, you know, you could do all sorts of things. Inpatient care was readily available and long-term care was readily available. And that's just not the case anymore. I was looking at some of these trends too, and I noticed that men are significantly more likely to mm -hmm. commit suicide than, mm -hmm. than women. And I was wondering if maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I think I think a lot of that has to do with uh, again. I'm gonna I'm gonna relate it back to kind of how we've conceptualized the problem uh, is a is a skill set. I think it's a couple of things. Uh, certainly, stigma uh, is a piece of that. I think there's a uh, for the most part, uh, you know, the male image uh, for the vast majority of men is one that uh, does not uh, facilitate uh, emotional connection and. Um, if you look, particularly in the work we've done in the military, I mean, men perceive illness as weakness, as failure, uh, and as somehow being damaged or inadequate. Um, but I think it's broader than that. I think that's related to um, a lack of capacity uh, for hope. And so I think it, I think it, quanti I think it really characterizes itself itself in this perspective of of hopelessness as a lack of ability to build hope at critical times. And and so men have have worse uh, interpersonal connections, so they have more shallow relationships uh, and have fewer uh, relationships with emotional depth. Um, but they also have, men as a whole, tend to have a limited ability for emotional processing. And when I say that, the capacity to regulate affect effectively. So men not only kill themselves at disproportionate rates, men have higher rates of alcohol abuse, substance abuse, all of these things that are related to a, a capacity to uh, process and regulate emotion effectively. And I think that's related to this broader issue of the capacity for hope in these critical moments. I mean, it, there, there are critical junctures around suicide where if you can intervene and delay the process, people won't try to kill themselves. But you have to be able to take a perspective in those moments that people that die can't do. Um, and, and so I, I really believe that there are these core uh, skill deficits that, that are, are behind um, uh, some of these correlations and some of the relationships that you find. So if you were advising some parents that had some kids, um, what kind of things would help you clue in that you've really got an issue here that maybe that they should see somebody pretty quickly? See somebody. Yeah, the, well, the emergence of the emergence of um, uh, illness early, in, in, the emergence of self harm early in life is always a bad sign. I mean, I, uh, you know, we we actually had a family friend uh, that uh, that we've known for decades now, who had a child uh, who, um, and I remember it distinctly when he was eight years old, he started self harming, so he started cutting. Um, at eight and clearly had evidence of an underlying uh, mental illness and and um, and tragically two years ago we got a phone call they don't live uh, they live in Houston now we got a phone call he killed himself uh, and uh, and I, I you know you can see that and, and it, that's a personal experience but that translates empirically that when you have the emergence of that kind of behavior early in life it is not a good predictor, but what it does is it's a manifestation of underlying risk, uh, both in terms of the illness, but all the, also the capacity uh, to regulate. I mean, the capacity to connect, um, 
uh, and deal effectively uh, with with emotional distress and emotional upset. Um, you know, relationships are at the heart of that. I mean, people that can build, maintain, and nurture relationships, and children that are isolated have less of a capacity, and ultimately that translates uh, to more risk later in life. Uh, so what drew you to this topic anyway? Yeah, well, it, it's interesting. Actually, it's a, uh, I was in uh, graduate school and, and uh, had an opportunity. I worked, uh, got an opportunity to work at Houston Child Guidance Center. Uh, and the program that I worked with uh, was actually a, it was stuff you can't do anymore. It was called uh, the Systemic Family Therapy Program. So we did, we did extended family therapy, which means we brought in the whole family for therapy plus honorary family members. So if you had a, somebody in your family that was, you know, Uncle, Uncle Joe, but he wasn't really your uncle, but he was that close to the family, that was a part of your family system. So we would bring in large groups, and it was for suicide attempting adolescents. And so we actually, uh, it was fascinating work. I mean, we'd have 30 people in the treatment room. We'd have these big rooms, and, you know, we'd have 30 people in there uh, doing systemic family therapy uh, for these adolescents who uh, had uh, made suicide attempts. Uh, and we actually compared it to hospitalization, and it was high, highly effective uh, even back then. But it was expensive. I mean, it was incredibly expensive. You have five or six clinicians in the room at the same time and had all these people. You, and you can't do those things today. I mean, that kind of therapy is not, is not authorized and supported by insurance, and so you can't do it anymore. But I really got enamored with it. I mean, I, it was really it was highly uh, impactful. I mean, I was um, really moved by some of these young adolescents and, and the trauma and the result of trauma. And uh, you know, trauma creates all kinds of problems and impairments. Two-thirds of this problem are people with trauma. So, uh, I mean, that, that it easily two-thirds. I mean, probably a little bit higher than that, but the best data says two-thirds of the problem are people with repeated trauma. Yeah, I noticed that the CDC, I think, came out with a survey called the ACES survey about childhood trauma, how much more likely many different things that could arise like suicide because of trauma. And, and so think about that. And so, so, you know, one of the things we've done in response to that uh, is um, when, when you do interventions with people, and, and particularly if you're doing an intervention with somebody who's got repeated childhood and adolescent trauma, at these critical moments, and so I think about, you know, critical moments where somebody, you know, when I was doing clinical care uh, every day, people would call me and say, I've got a gun to my head or, uh, you know, I'm on the edge of a bridge or um, at those critical moments, you need to be able to um, have the capacity to pull up cognitive material that's hopeful. But if you've got a lifetime of trauma, you don't have a reservoir of, of hope that you can access. And so you have to build that for people. So part of what we've done in our interventions is we do what's called reasons for living. So we do a very brief reasons for living card for everyone. And that's what we did in the emergency room. And we pursue um, an identification of reasons for living and have people um, look at that and uh, on a daily basis and remind themselves of why their life is important and meaningful. Um, 
it's highly effective. But part of what it does is it disrupts a cogn underlying cognitive process. So it looks like almost a, a ridiculously simple thing, but it actually does something that is part of it disrupts the mechanism of action of why people end up putting a gun to their head and pulling the trigger is because in those critical moments, they can't access information that's hopeful because they don't have much. They've got these lives of trauma, and that's the material that's in their head. And so you've got you've to create something that actually counters that. And that's what we've done, and it works. And I, but it's got, I think it's got good underlying science to it uh, as to why it works, even though it's very simple. So you have a parent who's seen these signs and symptoms. What's the first thing that they should do? Well, the first thing they should do is they ought to talk to a professional, and they ought to, they ought to get someone in care. The second thing they ought to do is make sure they're in the right kind of care. Uh, and I, you know, all therapy is not good therapy. Uh, and, and when I say that, I'll share a couple of thoughts about that. If you, if you have somebody, um, in therapy that can't regulate. So part of what we've learned to do, and I've been doing this for 30 years is if you've made a suicide attempt or you've made multiple suicide attempts, you come to see me, you're 16 years old and you've had repeated trauma in your life, the worst thing I can do for you is to start work on, is start working on your repeated trauma. And the reason is because you'll be dysregulated. So if you don't know how to regulate, you can't work on trauma because it just overwhelms you. What do you mean by self-regulate? The ability to process distress. And so the ability to, the ability when you get really upset and you feel, uh, you feel overwhelmed emotionally, so you get affectively charged. So if you've got a depressive problem in uh, an anxiety problem, so if you've got multiple depressive diagnoses and anxiety diagnoses and all that emotional upset surfaces, you've got to learn how to manage it and how to recover. And if you can't learn to do that, you can't be an insight based therapy. Um, it makes things worse because all the therapy does is dysregulate you. So one of the things we learned is um, if, if you come into my office and I do insight-based trauma work with you because you've been repeatedly sexually abused and you've been trying to kill yourself, I would argue that part of the reason you're trying to kill yourself is because you can't deal with the emotional upset that's related to that. Me exposing you repeatedly to emotional upset about doing that doesn't teach you how to manage it. So what we've done is we've done these brief programs of let's teach you how to manage it. Then we'll go back and work on that. But you can't work on it until you can manage it. So I've seen case after case after case. I used to do a lot of negligence and malpractice work. Um, I defended clinicians. I didn't, I never, uh, I only had one case on the plaintiff side and that was a uh, clinician that sold his patient a gun. I thought that was not good. Um, so I, yeah, so I took that, so I took that case. Um, but, um, you know, what we see is clinicians that will not understand that if you can't manage the emotional upset, you shouldn't be generating it for the patient. It increases the risk. So we completely retooled how we did things about a decade and a half ago. And ever since we've had much more effect. So if you were speaking to a parent right now, uh, what would be the major things to bring up, not continuous trauma, but is there like a checklist of some sort that would have big factors on it that they can make a little checklist of? Go, go, go. Yeah, go to the go to the SPRC. So the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, the SPRC website, it's SPRC.org. That's the federally funded uh, uh, resource center for anyone about suicide. And on that site, they have empirically informed treatments. 
Uh, and if I were a parent uh, and that was my child, and I am a parent, I do have kids, I'd go to the site and I would look at what the em- empirically supported treatments are. And I would ask my clinician if this is the kind of treatment you do. Uh, because frankly, any other treatment has not been particularly effective. Um, there are a handful of empirically informed treatments. They all, and, and I've done a review of all of those treatments a couple of years ago uh, that we published. Um, and I would tell you that even though they call them different things, they're all doing the same thing. We're all doing a, a small iteration of the same stuff, and it works. Um, and that you have to get uh, whoever, it, whether it's a child or an adult, they have to be stable before you can do other kinds of insight-based therapy. Um, and that these interventions help get the individual stable. And it makes it more possible for you to do longer-term insight-based therapy. And until that happens, um, you're taking a risk. I, I would argue that, that as often as not, the treatment may make things worse. So step one is keep them safe. Keep them safe, yeah, absolutely, and 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 keep them safe. Get professional assistance. Make sure it's the um, it's the appropriate kind of assistance. And as a part of that, one of the things that works is what's called a safety plan. And so we do safety planning and methods restriction and methods uh, limitations uh, is a part of that. And and all parents ought to do that. So what does a safety plan look like? Usually a very simple thing. You can do it on a three-by-five card. It's this, it's, it, it is a couple of elements. One is to, to have a clear indication of when the person is at risk. So you identify what the marker is, and, and that marker can be a lot of things. That marker can be thinking about what your method is or making effort to get your method, or it can be some physical signs and symptoms. I mean, you can do a lot of different approaches for that, but you need to have an activation point of at what point does the does the, the child or the adult know that they're at risk, and then you implement a series of steps. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, recovery, so if you're emotionally distressed, step one, uh, you know you do certain tasks. We do uh, a review of what we call a treatment journal. Then we do an emotion regulation task, and that's usually an emotional recovery task. Then we have a an emergency phone contact if they're not recovered. Uh, they have an emergency phone contact, and then finally they go to uh, the emergency room. But you only have a safety plan if you've limited access to your method. So part of that means you have to remove the method and access to the method, limit access to the method. Uh, sometimes that can be a challenge uh, for people, um, but it does work. I mean, uh, you know, if you've got a gun, securing the gun, putting a trigger lock, those things make a huge uh, difference. I've got a risk assessment here that you did with a student. I don't know when, I don't know his name or her name, and I found it really interesting. You've got eight factors, major factors, I was wondering if you could kind of go over those and comment about each one of them. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, one one is uh, this predisposition to, to suicidality. That's history. So those are things you can't change. Those are things that we call static variables. So there is a, there's a, there are static elements uh, that are unchanging uh, in terms of the nature of risk. And it just needs to be acknowledged and recognized that some people will be at, li- at risk and some for a lifetime. Uh, and then there are stressors, and most of the stressors revolve around losses of some form, whether it's financial loss, relationship loss, identity loss, 
um, things that activate uh, suicide risk. And then um, there is a constellation of symptoms. Uh, so there's the symptomatic presentation, which is predominantly depression and anxiety. So it's, it's, it's actually uh, autonomic arousal that creates the greatest risk. And, and during depressive times, um, it's not the depressive symptoms, it's the recovery phase where people are at greater risk. And so it's when you get autonomically aroused. And then the presence of hopelessness, um, and, and that is um, becoming less and less useful because everybody is hopeless. The nature of the hopelessness is important. I can talk to you a little bit about that. We have a different way of thinking about... Uh, hopelessness, if I'm hearing you correctly, sounds like the inability to think about something that is good in your life. Yeah, it's 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 the absence of hope, and so it's actually more constructive, and and we're moving away from that. So we're talking more about the capacity for hope. So because everybody is hopeless that makes a suicide attempt or dies by suicide, and so we're we're talking more about the capacity for hope that we really ought to be assessing the capacity for hope, um, because that's a better indicator. It's more refined. It has broader range. Um, and it's probably going to be a little bit more specific. And, 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 and when you look at psychometric properties, specificity is important. And so it, it offers more in terms of specificity. In your new book, does it have questions mm -hmm. related yeah, it to... Um, it has questions, yeah. We've, we're develop, we've developed a questionnaire. It's not particularly good yet, um, but it's very helpful. I mean, I tell you that, that it works uh, and, uh, and, and helps you conceptualize this problem, I think, a little more accurately uh, and would encourage people to think about that. The nature of suicidal thinking, um, and just a couple things to remember there, specificity and duration go together. So the more specific somebody thinks, the longer they tend to spend thinking about it. Um, the duration of time somebody thinks is really important. But suicidal thinking in and of itself is not that important. So give you an example of that. So if, if you have somebody that you're working with that has made four suicide attempts and they've had horrible trauma in their life, a natural reaction to, um, to uh, anything that evokes a memory of the trauma is to think about killing themselves. And so we started distinguishing between what we've called meaningful suicidal thoughts and meaningless. And that's not reflected here because this is an earlier version. So a meaningless suicidal thought is a brief fleeting thought that's just a memory. So it really is you've just activated a memory of previous suicidal behavior. Meaningful suicidal thinking has motivation and intent attached to it. That's when you're really emotionally distressed. And so it's got motivation and intent. And helping people recognize the difference helps people be more hopeful. So one of the things that is really interesting is that people that... Um, when you educate them about that, they realize that they're not always suicidal. One of the things that facilitates hopelessness in patients and limits the capacity for hope is they think they're always suicidal. So people who have chronic suicidality tend to say, yeah, I'm always suicidal. Well, no, you're having memories. And your, your history of memories, your reservoir of memories is trauma-based. And most of that was associated with suicidality. It's just a memory. And so teaching people to dismiss meaningless thoughts actually has a lot of value. You were making a distinction earlier, I think it might have been before we started, between suicidality and depression. Mm -hmm. I think most people think depression as soon as they hear... Um, yeah, that's not the case at all. Yeah, Anxiety is a bigger risk factor, frankly, than depression. Uh, it's the it's the arousal that's the problem. I mean, I people don't make uh, people don't make suicide attempts when they're neurovegetatively depressed. 
They don't have the energy and the cognitive capacity. They make them when they're autonomically aroused. So they'll make them in the recovery phase. I mean, we actually did a study on that a number of years ago. Uh, it's in the recovery phase from a depression when they're more active. It's when the cognitive element's still there, but they have the physical capacity to act on the thought. Um, and that's a greater risk than during neurovegetative depression, people are incapacitated. Uh, it's in the later phases that, that, that they're at greater risk. So then we have the nature of suicidal thinking, previous suicidal behavior, impulsivity, protective factors. So I like the protective factors. One of them is that you have children in the home. Yeah, absolutely. People are far less likely to kill themselves. And, and, and a part of that is, I, you know, I, I, we now conceptualize that as one of the elements that builds capacity for hope. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you have children, uh, you're able to you're able to. Um, uh, assume a hopeful perspective, which helps, uh, which helps uh, undercut some of the risk and undermine some of the risk. You also have things like being pregnant, which kind of plays mm -hmm. into it as well. Pregnancy is actually, uh, pregnancy is the most effective variable uh, for uh, someone who's bipolar. It actually stabilizes bipolar illness at disproportionate rates and lowers risk profoundly during the pregnancy. And social disapproval, um, people are afraid of yeah. social disapproval, I guess, after they're gone. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're probably getting pretty close to the end of our time. I wanted to mention that first, if people want to reach out to someone, there's a hotline that I found, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which is 1-800-273-8255 mm -hmm. yeah. or one 800 273 talk and if you could uh, kind of give us your broad overview of just what people can do or if they can walk away from this podcast with one thing or two things that you think are the most important things to recognize what would you say yeah i would say uh i'd say one um any kind of illness uh, is treatable um and treatments are highly effective um, the second thing I say is you actually have to do the treatment. So uh, one of the things that uh, we have, have done, I think, very effectively in our trials is people that don't fully comply with the treatment, you're not actually doing the treatment. So if you, if you get ill and you take an antibiotic, you have to take the full antibiotic for the full course to have effect. Um, otherwise, you're not what's, at called, what's called therapeutic dosage. Same thing for therapy. If you don't do the therapy, it doesn't work. And so I've had people uh, that I've worked with who've come in and said, you know, I've tried treatment five different times. And then I go through the history of their treatment. And, you know, they're supposed to be in treatment once every week for, you know, five, five months. And they come once every six sessions. No, you're not actually in treatment. Um, you actually have to do the treatment. So if you do the treatment, I tell you that success rate uh, for our treatment, uh, if you did the treatment, the success rate was over 85% if you do the treatment, but you got to do the whole treatment. And so keeping people motivated and connected to the treatment. And then the, 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 the last thing I would say is that um, there are always reasons to be hopeful uh, and, uh, and, and creating a mechanism to recognize that and to, to reach out and to connect to people. But many people that have this difficulty have difficult time connecting. And so one of the things, one of the skills we work on is that interpersonal skill. So we work on cognitive skills. Um, 
around basic perspective and problem solving, emotional regulation, learning to manage your emotions more effectively, um, and, uh, and ultimately interpersonal about managing relationships more effectively. And we find people, when you do that, the suicidality goes away. The illness doesn't go away, but what happens is your capacity to manage the illness is better. So you're, if you've got depression, bipolar illness, um, an anxiety disorder, your ability to manage that disorder goes up profoundly and life gets better. And, and when people have done the treatment, uh, the overwhelming majority uh, find that they, uh, they find a life worth living and suicide is not an issue, even when they still struggle. Could you repeat the names of the books that you have coming out? Yeah, we just we just published a book uh, uh, called uh, "Brief Cognitive Therapy uh, for uh, Suicidality," uh, and actually, I've got a copy. I'll give you if you want a copy. Uh, uh, and uh, it's with Guilford Press, uh, and it covers uh, it covers a lot of this. And then I've got a book I'm working on now that'll be out in a year called "Hope as a Skill," um, and it's about uh, how to think about um, this problem, and and not to think, not to take a perspective that it's mental illness. I, I genuinely, the vast majority of mentally uh, people suffering and struggling with mental illness don't kill themselves. It's a broader issue, and I think we've been a little bit off target, and that's probably why we haven't had much effect as a as a country. And they can find those on Amazon. Yeah, you can just, you can just Google it. Yeah, just you go to Guilford. I think it's uh, Guilford.com, and and or you just put in my name and just put in my name in books, and it'll pop up. What if people want to reach out to you for some sort of training, seminar, speaking engagement? or? Yeah, I do a little bit of that now. I used to do a lot of that. I, I, I do a little bit of that now um, uh, in different uh, in different spots. I mean, you can always email me uh, here uh, at the university. It's just president at memphis.edu. Uh, and I'm happy to send you a, a list of where I'm speaking. I'm doing a talk in, uh, in, in Alaska next week, and, and I do a little bit. I just don't have as much time now, uh, but uh, always happy to, happy to share what I do and some of my colleagues uh, do great trainings uh, as well. Any kind of social media that you could point people to? You know, I would encourage people the the a nice webpage actually the the sprc.org is it's got all these resources they do they have a speaker series there um, and list where people are going to be the American Association of Suicidology aas.org uh, AFSP the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention uh, is really good all of those uh, have list and in detail uh, of what's available both empirically and what's available to go get training and, and, and other, uh, other resources. In other words, don't try to friend Dr. Rudd on Facebook. I don't have a, fa- I don't have a Facebook page, so you can't, yeah, I, I was way ahead of that, uh, that privacy problem. I never got a Facebook page. I am on Twitter, but I, but I don't do Facebook. Yeah. yeah. What's your Twitter account? Uh, it is uh, U of Memphis uh, Prez uh, with an S. Uh, so one, one word, U of Memphis and Prez, P-R-E-S. Well, thank you for talking yeah. to us today. Uh, we really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, happy to do it. Yeah, anytime.